If you've ever worried about your baby choking, gagging, or just generally moving past purees, you are going to feel so much more knowledgeable after this episode. And I have a resource to share with you today that is truly revolutionary. It's the first of its kind, and it will change the way parents feed their babies for the better. And it's free. Trust me when I tell you that you want to hear all the details. If you have a baby, if you're pregnant, or even thinking about having a baby, or have someone close to you who's in that stage of life. I'm Casey Barnes, and this is Feeding Toddlers Made Easy. I'm your host, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and mama of two, and creator of MamaKnowsNutrition.com. Feeding Toddlers Made Easy is all about solving nutrition and picky eating struggles, but today we're talking babies with my special guest, Jenny Best. Jenny is the founder of Solid Starts, a team of pediatric food and feeding experts, doctors, nutritionists, and dietitians, and the world's first comprehensive platform for starting babies on solid food. Solid Starts features the First Foods database. It's a free food database and app complete with instructions and how-to videos for introducing real food to babies. And Jenny's going to explain more to us in this episode. Solid Starts serves more than 1 million people from 175 countries worldwide, offering complimentary resources to those facing economic hardship and parenting solo. I just love the whole mission of this company, and I can't wait for y'all to hear more. Here's Jenny. Jenny, I'm thrilled to have you here chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. I'm so excited to talk to you because what you've created is such an amazing resource, and I know you've connected with hundreds of thousands of parents and caregivers all over the world at this point. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, what scares parents the most about finger foods for their babies? I mean, I remember that feeling, right? When everything you're taught is that babies should be fed from this very textureless puree in a jar, the sight of seeing a baby grab a piece of steak and bring it to their mouth is terrifying. I was terrified. It's a completely normal response to be having. What we have to do is actually go back about a hundred years because that's kind of how it was before. And in fact, parents were like pre-chewing meat and then handing it over, which I think is really interesting too, but it's a generational thing is what I'm trying to say. So it's a normal fear. I felt that same way too, but it's only normal because of the way we've been kind of conditioned to think that baby food should be or look like or how babies should be fed. But let's talk about choking because it is the number one fear. And I mean, we're just so anxious and sensitive in that first year of life. I mean, it's like your job is to keep this human being alive, right? Mm -hmm. And so anything that's pushing those boundaries can feel very, very nerve wracking. The beautiful thing is that the research and the evidence really supports that there is no increased risk of choking whether you're feeding your baby with finger food or purees. And I know that sounds like, well, how could that be? How is that possible? There is a crazy thing that no one's really talking about, which is this. When your brain or your baby's brain decides to pick up a piece of food and actively, like cognitively decide to put it in your mouth, the body is more prepared to swallow it safely. Swallowing is really just 
a like kind of concert of coordinated muscle movements. That's all it really is. And choking is the opposite of that. It is when that something in that coordination fails. So it's actually not always about the shape of the food or that the food isn't a mash or a puree. It's a coordination failure. You can choke on milk. You can choke on water. You can aspirate, you know, watermelon seeds. Like all these things are possible. So when we talk about, you know, reducing the risk around feeding babies and reducing our anxiety around that, what we really want to focus on is setting up a safe environment so that baby is focused. There's no distractions, no sudden loud noises, you know, nothing like blaring from the television all of a sudden that might startle them and that they're positioned in a safe way to eat so that the muscle coordination can happen naturally. The body is really designed to protect you and your baby from choking. There's actually a little kind of flap of tissue that covers the airway. So you have a food tube and an air tube. And there's this flap of tissue that closes off the airway entirely during the swallow. So for that to kind of fail and not work, there has to be something else going on. And often it's because a baby is startled or coughing or a toddler is laughing or running around. So when you look at the data around choking statistics, what we're really seeing and what our swallowing specialists are most nervous about are toddlers on the move. And I know you specialize in this age. (laughs) know a little thing about (laughs) snacking on the go. (laughs) No, you're so right. And when I think about my own personal experience as a mom, it is hard to really think about that once they are on the move of making sure that they are seated safely. But so when we talk about our babies, I think people don't necessarily notice the difference between choking and gagging. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. So first, they are entirely different mechanisms. And in fact, they're almost opposites, which is a beautiful thing. So I know a lot of folks worry, can gagging lead to choking? Or is gagging a sign that my baby's about to choke? None of these things are true. Gagging is a forward thrusting motion of the the throat muscles and the mouth and the tongue to push food up and forward and out. It's very easily triggered in a six-month-old baby or you know, a six to nine-month-old baby in particular. And it's really powerful. In fact, it can sometimes almost lead to like a vomit, right? Or sound like the baby is vomiting. So it is physiologically speaking, everything is thrusting up and forward and out of the mouth. Choking is exactly the opposite. Something is occluding the airway, so completely lodged in the airway or partially lodged, but something is in the airway. So again, the wrong tube, it went down the wrong way and it's stuck to the point where you don't have the air pressure or cough pressure to, to get it out. And what that looks like is an inward sucking motion. So the baby or individual will typically motion up to their throat. They'll be reaching for their throat as if something they're trying to get something out. You might see some skin tugging in as if they were kind of really breathing hard in. And again, they're sucking in because they're desperately trying to get some air. So We like to point to visual things that help parents identify the difference. If your baby is choking, they are going to have extremely wide eyes. They will have a look of terror on their face. You cannot mistake it. They will not be coughing or making any sound at all. Possibly a faint wheeze, maybe, if it was a partial kind of situation. 
but it, it's, it's almost a silent, scary, wide-eyed thing. If your baby is making sounds like a retching sound, a vomiting sound, a coughing sound, or crying, they are not choking. I have this story that I love to share because one of our followers was a 911 operator, emergency services operator here in the US. She told me, I used to get so many calls from moms thinking their baby was choking when in fact I could hear the baby in the background Mm. crying and she knew just by that that they weren't choking because they were able to cry or cough or make some sounds. So I love that story because it really illustrates the difference. If your child is making noise, they're probably not choking. The other thing I'll just say, and then maybe we can move on to happier, <laughs> move on to happier topics, is that there are so many protective mechanisms that have your back here. We have the gag reflex, protect from choking. We have the tongue thrust reflex, which is a lingering reflex in infants. Even the amount of air you would have in your lungs is typically enough to forcefully expel something. So when we look at reducing the risk of choking, we want to look at making food in a shape and consistency that can't easily get lodged in that airway. Your baby's air tube, their windpipe is about the diameter of a drinking straw. That sometimes freaks people out because they're like, that is so small. Anything bigger than that is going to cause my baby to choke. It's actually the opposite the bigger, the safer, because if it can't get in the straw, it can't get stuck. So I love thinking of that. I have a a visual on our Instagram of putting a peanut inside of a drinking straw and showing why a whole peanut is so dangerous. So you've got that like kind of tapered shape where it's small enough and round and hard, where it can kind of squeeze in kind of perfectly, but you can't really get it out very easily. That's what really makes a, um, a choking hazard. So we often say that bigger is better and safer when it comes to babies just starting solids. That is hugely helpful and I think gives a really clear depiction of that difference between the choking and the gagging and how somewhere along the way, all of us pretty much growing up never learned about that, you know? <laughs> and so then as parents, I think any sign of your child struggling to you can feel like a choking. This is an emergency episode. But what you so eloquently displayed to us is that if we hear those sounds and they are crying, making those any sounds that it's really not what we think it is. Not an emergency. Gagging is good. That's so, so helpful. Now let's shift a little bit and talk about teeth because I know that also can be a barrier to people moving beyond purees. Yeah. Everyone assumes that, you know, we need teeth to chew and teeth are helpful in biting and tearing. But when it comes to actually breaking down the food in your mouth, if you really think about it, if you were to take a bite of food, your tongue moves it over to the side for your molars to then break down. Well, toddlers don't have molars until well after their first birthday. So if your notion is that babies need teeth to eat, or to chew finger food, well, then you're waiting well after the first birthday to offer finger food, which is a really bad idea. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, our our swallowing therapists and and feeding therapists often uh, share that, you know, that the teeth, the molars, they're right below the skin of the gums. They are very powerful, the gums. Have you ever put your finger in your baby's mouth near the gums? They can press down really hard. 
What they can't do as effectively without teeth is grind. So that's why you'll see toddlers even well up to age two spit out fruit skins, grape skins, tomato skins, and struggle a bit more with raw greens. Because the motion to really break those down to a place where you feel comfortable swallowing it requires a bit more grinding. It doesn't mean those foods are unsafe or that fruit skins or, you know, um, the skin of an apple is commonly spit out are unsafe. It just means your baby kind of knows they don't have that part down yet. And so they spit it out while chewing the rest of the flesh of the, of the food. So you don't actually need teeth to eat. And those bunny teeth that your baby has, you know, growing in first, those front and top bunny teeth are really just going to help them bite food off. It's not really going to help them chew. So what we're looking for is molars to help grind. But most of the time, if the food is cooked, it's not too hard. It's cut thinly. You know, you're going to be just fine. The baby doesn't really need the teeth to, to break that down. Another myth busted by Jenny. (laughs) We should do a video of like a grandparent without their dentures and a six-month-old baby and show that it's basically the same. It's seriously, it is. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now let's talk about self-feeding. This doesn't necessarily mean that purees are completely off the table, but what age should babies be self-feeding and what are the benefits of that? Yeah, well, this is all really up for debate right now in our society, which is an awesome thing, in my opinion, because I think that the last century has really been shaped by corporate marketing in the United States from very large companies who want your child on their product as early as possible and for long as possible, right? So, you know, I have to say, Casey, this is crazy. I recently discovered that the recommendations around quote unquote, baby food or starting with purees or rice cereal are grounded in zero evidence. So there's actually no research supporting that spoon feeding or purees or whatever baby food is appropriate, developmentally necessary, the best way of going about it. It's the only thing in pediatrics that doesn't have evidence behind it. Wow. And it's the scariest part. I think it's crazy. So we have to, again, we have some unlearning to do. And I like to share that before we talk about the other stuff, because it's it's a really important context in, in the backdrop. So when we talk about the age of starting solids, look, in 1880, the average age of starting solids was 11 months old. At that time, the child has a pincer grasp. They can pick up small pieces of food. They have some teeth. They can bite and tear. Baby food was completely irrelevant and unnecessary as a concept at starting solids at 11 months old. Now, we now know from a health perspective, the most beneficial time or the most strategically optimal time to start solids is around six months of age. But the interesting thing is that Also, at six months of age, babies are able to self-feed. They have the developmental skills to do that. They're reaching for things. They're grabbing and bringing it to their mouth. They're teething on things. And if you really watch a six-month-old, it's all about preparedness for, like, they're preparing to eat. You can just see it. They're teething and biting and mouthing on everything. So we really don't want to interrupt that process. So around six months of age is, is generally what we want to look for. If you want to be really good about it, we're going to be talking about more about developmental signs that you see. So we want your child to be able to sit upright independently in their high chair and not be flopping over. That's a choking, you know, prevention sign that we want to see. 
We want to see baby interested in what you're eating, just psychologically kind of ready and interested in that. Otherwise, it might be an uphill battle and kind of start you off the wrong path. And even just waiting one week can make all the difference at that age. They grow so quickly and develop so quickly. So we have a full list of readiness signs on our website, but generally we want to look for strong trunk and head control, coordinated movements of the hands, being able to reach for a toy and bring it to their mouth, for example, and some interest in watching, watching you eat. In most babies, that's going to happen around six months of age. Now, let's talk about the recommendation from your doctor or whoever that says, let's start rice cereal at four months old, who like clearly hasn't read the press this year Mm -hmm. of what's in rice cereal. And the FDA issued a a notice essentially saying that they no longer recommend rice cereal be used as the primary baby food. So the reason that that recommendation was in place was because doctors got really concerned about iron intake and infant cereal, as you know, is fortified with iron. And so, you know, if your food choices are limited, it can be a great way to get in iron, but it's not a necessary first food. And it's not something that you need to be doing at six months at all because babies can chew at six months of age. So if, you know, your doctor is suggesting that you start earlier than six months of age, whether that's for reflux reasons or iron levels or what have you, there might be, or even allergen exposure can be a reason for starting early. Those might be some sort of exceptions to the rule, but the medical community is really kind of debating all of this right now. And it's finally rooting itself in science, which we're really excited about. I'm so glad. I mean, even the fact that this year, for the first time ever, we have in the dietary guidelines for Americans that birth to two age range. When I was back in graduate school, I just couldn't believe myself. I How is this possible that we have no guidelines, official guidelines yeah. for this age group? And every, you know, I think parents often look at places like the CDC and the FDA for recommendations on like what fish are safe and Mm -hmm. how much of this can I have? All those recommendations are based on age two and up. Yeah. Even the the entire like mercury recommendations around, it it doesn't, it's like they just skipped that part because, you know, they didn't want to test on infants and stuff like that. It makes sense. But we now know so much more than we did before. Yeah. incredible. Well, and Solid Starts is really bringing that information to people on a widespread level that is free and available. And I want to talk all about it, but there's one thing that I'm very curious to hear from your perspective before we do, like what foods would you say are the most surprising to parents when you say you can actually feed this to your baby? Yeah. You know, they're really aren't that many foods that are off limits. And it's one of the things I love about starting with finger food is because it opens up a world of possibility in terms of flavor and texture and taste, but also things that are culturally relevant to your family, right? We don't all have to be eating the same, you know, Gerber puree or rice cereal. It can be beautifully diverse. Some of the foods I think surprise parents the most who are just learning about this is that a wonderful first food could be a chicken drumstick. It's like, wait, what? That huge (laughs) thing? If you peel off the skin and hand that over, you'll see it looks like a rattle. Babies love it. It's easy for them to pick up and bring to their mouth and relatively low risk because the kinds of pieces that get pulled off are really too big to make it too far into the mouth. So they're mostly going to mouth and teeth on it. 
it also just provides a ton of sensory input into the mouth, which the brain needs to map the mouth. When you are a baby, you can't feel like a little piece of eggshell in your mouth. We can as adults because our brain has been, our brain has mapped the mouth. That all has to be learned. And the only way it's learned is through poking and prodding and chewable food. So we love chicken drumsticks. A mango pit is what I tell parents to try first who are terrified because it's big. You can't bite through it. It's, you know, it's just even too big to put in in the mouth, right? Yeah. It's like the most delicious teether (laughs) ever. (laughs) But Generally, we love looking at really big resistive foods. Those actually are safer because baby can pull it out of the mouth more easily. And the bits that will come off are not usually a size or shape that are concerning. I I love that recommendation. And I do think that would help take away the fear for some parents of looking at that mango pit. There's absolutely zero way that this could get stuck in my baby's throat and they can try. Would you also agree that when baby is putting the food in their mouths themselves, that that's helping with that brain process of figuring out where things need to go, where things are? Exactly. And the research shows that the choking risk lowers when the child puts the food in their mouth themselves. The brain is just more ready to do it for exactly the reasons you described. But generally, when it comes to finger food, you just never want to put place it in the child's mouth. Always let them, as clumsy as it may be, mm-hmm. let them initiate that activity. Right. And I just can't not touch on this. The fact that when parents see their kids spitting out food, <laughs> they often assume that they don't like it. But what can you tell me about that? Yeah, with gagging too, we have so many videos that parents have sent in and I always love listening to the the, like the commentary in the background between (laughs) the um the parents. It's always so much fun. But you know, for example, a child will spit it out and the the parent rushes to assume, oh, you don't like that. And then they say that. And it's almost confusing for the child because very rarely was it the case that they wouldn't like it. In fact, most babies wouldn't spit something out that they didn't like which is an interesting thing. They would probably still work with it and make a face, but not necessarily spit it out. Spitting is merely, well, first of all, it's a life skill. We want to see your child spit. That's really important. So when they pick up something off the floor that is unsafe and they realize it's not food, that they can spit it out. That's a hugely important skill. So don't look at it as a bad thing. Look at it as like a check mark, like a yes, okay, we've got spitting down, good. <laughs> Moving on to swallowing. But when a child is spitting, when a, a baby or toddler is spitting something out, it's usually because they are just not confident that they've chewed it enough to swallow it. And not to gross you out, but often what will happen is the baby will spit the food out, look at it to learn, oh, that's too big, or oh, that's not chewed enough, and then take a bite from it and put it back in. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite is when they offer that to you. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. I'm full. (laughs) Okay, so I want listeners to hear all about what Solid Starts has to offer in your first foods database because it truly is an incredible resource that I wish I had when my first was a baby because even with the knowledge I have as a dietitian, it's still with your first baby, especially it's so nerve wracking to introduce those foods. And every food is different in texture and shape and size. And it's like, someone needs to just tell me how to do this. So 
Tell us about <laughs> what you yeah, created. So we are creating, it's live right now, but we are building the world's first food database for babies. When we're done, it will have uh, probably more than a thousand foods in it. Wow. Um, pretty comprehensive in terms of, you know, cultures and, and foods across the world. But it's the place you go to, to look up whether something's an allergen, is it a choking hazard? What's the impact on baby's poop? How do I cut this for a six month old versus an 18 month old? And, you know, we throw in a recipe there for the sort of first introduction as well. So the entire database is free. It'll be free forever. And um, it's also an app in both uh, Android and, and for iPhones as well. So when I think about the first foods database, I wanted to make something that was totally accessible to everybody around the world forever. And that was really important to us. It is costing so much money to build and it's everything for us. But basically we operate as a social enterprise, almost like a nonprofit in that way, or the revenue that comes in then funds the expansion of the first foods database. And to me, you know, when I was looking at baby led weaning and nutrition in the United States, it has become a very privileged space, you know, and I want to undo a little bit of that by making sure that everyone has access to the information they need to offer whole fresh foods to their baby. I I love the mission behind it. And I'm so glad that this idea came to you and that <laughs> you acted on it. It wasn't just like, hmm, wouldn't that be nice? But you're like, I'm going to actually make this. And a thousand foods, I mean, that's incredible. And, you know, what people will notice very quickly when they go check out your website or your app is that you have an entire team of experts and specialists. It's not just like, you know, you don't throw this together. It's very well thought out and researched. So tell us about the whole team. Yeah. Thank you for asking, because I always forget to talk about the amazing experts that we have because I'm just so in the forest with things. But, (laughs) you know, when we built the database Look, I built this database because I was tired of Googling, like Mm -hmm. tired of Googling and then questioning, does this mom blogger know what she's talking about? Or does this, you know, media article have any bias that I should know about? So we wanted to create a very evidence-based multidisciplinary platform where, you know, each food, for example, in our database is reviewed by seven or eight people and they're all licensed experts in their field. So a pediatric allergist reviews it, a pediatrician reviews it, a gastroenterologist reviews it, a pediatric dietitian reviews it, a functional nutritionist reviews it, and a food researcher, and then swallowing specialist and feeding therapist. So we really covered all of the bases when it comes to that. I wanted to build something totally trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Um, So the folks on our team We have quite a big team now, but the primary senior team is our pediatrician, Dr. Ruiz, Stanford-trained pediatrician, double board certified doctor and uh, gastroenterologist, our allergist, who's also an MD and author in this space, and she is just amazing. And then we have swallowing specialists, feeding therapists, speech language pathologists, lactation consultants, nutritionists, dietitians, (laughs) the whole thing. I I can't really stop myself. That's the problem. (laughs) I just want to make sure, you know, I was that mom, right? I was the one who didn't trust anybody and I don't trust anything I read online anymore. And so I wanted to build this like completely bulletproof multidisciplinary thing that dare I say could be respected by the American Academy of Pediatrics one day. (laughs) 
I, I mean, I hope so. I do feel that is incredibly trustworthy for all the reasons that you mentioned. And just going there and seeing that you list your sources for things, you can easily see who are all these experts and what are their credentials. So I'm so incredibly grateful to you for offering this to the world for free. It's where I send anyone who comes to me with a question on how do I introduce this food? I say, go to Solid Starts and you will find the answer. (laughs) And you have some videos too, which I think it's so helpful for parents to see other babies eating these foods. Yes, exactly. So every food has uh, two or three videos of babies at different ages self-feeding that food. So you can really build your confidence and see, oh, they can do it. I think my baby can do that too. Exactly. Oh, it's just the best. Jenny, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me, Casey. We love you. The First Foods Database is on solidstarts.com. You can look for the app, which I believe is Solid Starts. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then Instagram as well. There's always amazing content coming out on Instagram. So follow at Solid Starts there as well. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you so much, Casey. 